Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, from the capital city of the world, Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, I bring to you the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. Are you ready? That was my best Michael Buffer impersonation if you know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, so today I have a special episode for you. We're going to have a guest interview, Nathan Batty, the person that looks just like me. I don't know. You can decide whether he sounds just like me, um, but you know, people always talk and they'll call me Nathan. Back before I started preaching at the Chapel Grove Church of Christ here in Tennessee, I moved... Oh, I didn't move here. I, I came here to visit at a Labor Day meeting, I believe it was, and... I made a joke before I started speaking. They asked me to speak. I said, you know, I always get called my older brother Nathan. People always call me Nathan. And sometimes I get called George, rarely. And then one time I got, I literally did, I got called Peggy, which is my mom's name. And I, at the time I had a beard, and I still do. And I said, I don't know why, but perhaps it was the beard. Nobody really laughed. They didn't think that was funny. And I don't really know why, because my mom wasn't even in attendance. But it is true that I do get called Nathan a lot. So while we do look a lot the same, I think we have a distinctive sound difference to our voice. I'll let you decide. Hopefully you don't get thrown off if we don't, and you know who's talking. But anyways, a while back I wrote an article. This is probably three or four months ago. I wrote an article called, Is Pornography a Scriptural Grounds for Divorce? I think that's the name of the article. And... I got some feedback from that. We'll, I'll mention it again in the interview. It's going to come up again. But anyway, uh, I wanted to do a podcast episode at the time, but then I was like, you know what? I want to think through some of the stuff that people have submitted back to me. And then recently, my brother and I were sharing some uh, correspondence, and he, he sent me some notes that he had on this very subject. And I was like, this is uh, providing some new light that I didn't consider before that I think is very helpful to the conversation. So I texted him, I said, hey, would you be willing to come on the podcast? And he agreed. So in this episode, I'm not going to have all the uh, Bible stories and all that. My, I have a really, really runny nose today, and I just don't feel like it. So I hope you don't mind. It's going to be about a 30-minute interview with Nathan. And so without delaying any longer, let's just get right into the interview. Okay, we're here on the main dish. I've got a special guest, Nathan Batty, my brother. Welcome, Nathan, to the show. Say hey to everybody. Hello, it's good to be with you today. I didn't really plan on Nathan being on the podcast anytime soon, not for any reason not to have him on, but just recently he sent me an article, uh, well, an article, something he had written on something I had also written on 5-Minute Bible Study, and that is about, is um, looking at pornography a scriptural ground for divorce? Some of you may have read the article that I wrote on that recently and posted my website. Um, that got quite a bit of attention, and I got some feedback on that. Well, Nathan, had, in his recent studies and writing, brought something else to the table that I had never considered before. I thought it was so good that just had to have him on while he was here for a, a little young speakers meeting we're having at Chapel Grove. So to cut to the chase of the matter, uh, what do you believe? Is it right or wrong? <laughs> <laughs> So in a nutshell, we can cut through everything else. I don't even have to talk. I believe it's, I don't believe that looking at pornography is grounds for divorce uh, as per Matthew chapter five. And we'll talk about that as we go along today. 
Okay, next up, foot and mouth syndrome. <laughs> okay, just uh, no. We obviously are going to get into some meat here. So uh, the part that I had never heard before is you broke down the context of Matthew chapter five, and you went actually started back up before where Jesus starts talking about um, lust of the eyes being considered adultery of the heart. You backed up to where Jesus starts talking about anger. So let's examine those, and I'll give you pretty much the floor in just a moment. Um, before you got into that, I, I guess you sent me some sermon notes. Is that correct? Correct. So I thought that you had a, a few good points leading up to that. Uh, I mean, more than a few, but anyways, a few that are worth at least expressing before we get into Matthew five. So, um, what are you? Do you think are some critical concepts or critical points maybe to prepare our minds for approaching these verses? So when we talk about sexual sin in the Bible, I think it's important to use biblical terms. There's a lot of controversy that comes into this discussion because a lot of terms are used where people are using different definitions or they're using terms that the Bible doesn't use and end up bringing meaning into passages or into the discussion that isn't relevant. And I think that brings up some confusion. And so I think it's important to point out when God speaks about divorce, the grounds of divorce, which allows someone to remarry, he talks about on the grounds of fornication or pornia in Greek. And pornia has within itself the concept of physical contact or touch. That's brought out in a couple passages, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul said there, now concerning things whereof ye wrote unto me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, why is it not good for a woman, man to touch a woman? He follows it up, nevertheless, to avoid fornication. So their fornication is self-defined as touching a woman. And then you can also look at, back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you have this concept of a man going into a prostitute, which involved physical touch. And I think it's important to distinguish between virtual reality or pornography and physical touch, which is pornite. It's part of the very definition of the term. That first Corinthians 7, 1 through 2 passage about the uh, you know physical touch he mentions there, I, I thought that was a good catch. I didn't actually think about that. So I think that's worth bringing up. Um, was that the only, you said there was a few critical concepts. Was that just one of them? That's the main one uh, that I, I really want to stress with people. And uh, we have to keep the biblical terms and the biblical the definitions that go along with those biblical terms in mind and denote the presence of fornication whenever we're talking about grounds for divorce, which is very germane to our topic today. So you believe that the word using the word fornication as we discuss this, you know, grounds for divorce, it's important to use the word fornication and not sexual immorality because of the connotations that the word carries with it. Yes, uh, sexual immorality, when you think of that term, that would include any type of sin that has a sexual nature to it. I don't believe that all sexual sins are equal to pornia or involve physical touch and are therefore not grounds. Um, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, like in verse 4 and 5, Paul's referencing there, he's saying, it's not good to deprive one another except with consent for a time to be given to prayer and fasting. Okay, if you withhold yourself from your spouse, that is a sin that involves sexual activity, and yet that's not grounds for divorce. Um, I, I think that the same could be said of pornography. It's 
It is a sexual sin, but it does not involve touch, pornia, which is required in order to have a, a scriptural divorce. I, th- I really do uh, agree that the words that we use carry a lot of weight. If you are a listener and you think that this is a trivial thing, it's just, we quote-unquote, semantics. Well, sometimes semantics matter. And uh, if you don't think this is important, then just look at cultural issues that are raging right now. The very word, um, it's my choice, that word is specifically chosen um, to take people's attention away from what's really at stake <laughs> on the abortion issue. I could, we could go through many other cultural key phrases, buzzwords, and so I would agree. I think the word fornication is important to use. Um, that is the the word Jesus. That's the um, what Jesus said was the grounds for divorce in Matthew nineteen verse nine. Sorry, had a brain fart there. <laughs> Um, okay, so that preps us a little bit. If you have any questions about that, um, we are kind of hurrying along to Matthew chapter 5. We are perhaps skipping a few things in your mind's imagination that might need to be clarified, um, but we can always round back to those if uh, you have questions after this episode. Let's get on to Matthew 5. Um, that's where you know, I, there's one preacher, a street preacher named Ray Comfort. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He always uses this passage where Jesus says, but if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery. And he'll ask men on the street. He says, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? And they're always, usually most people on the street interview are pretty honest. And they're like, oh yeah, all the time. He's like, so you're saying you're an adulterer? <laughs> well, actually he does specify an adulterer at heart. And they're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Um, and so this is used, it's, it's been taken generally, I would say, by evangelicalism as just pretty common knowledge and understanding that Jesus is now classifying lust in the New Testament right there on par with physical fornication that, you know, that was the issue under the Old Testament. Well, now we're taking it up a notch in this new law. Would you agree? Yes, I agree. That's how it's used. So I'll read the passage In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, the Bible says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And when people read that, I think they just make this little statement in their mind, or they'll say it out loud, that lust is equal to adultery. It's the same thing. You can use those interchangeably. I think there's problems with that. I do believe that there is a direct relationship between the two, but I also believe that Matthew is maintaining distinction within his terms. And that's part of what I want to discuss today. Uh, Contextually, and I I begin that discussion by backing up to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Here he's dealing with another sin of the heart, and I don't think that there's this radical break of thought between verses 21 through 26 and then verses 27 through 30. I think you have similar concepts that are being discussed, that is, sins of the heart that result in actions of the flesh. So I'll read for you Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. It's important to note here at the beginning that there's a little bit of a pattern that begins throughout Matthew 5. He begins by saying, you have heard that it was said, and he makes a statement that follows it up, and then he, he makes this statement, but I say to you. What he's doing is he's pointing out there's something old that they've heard, and he'll go to the old law. You can go to the, to the old law, and you can find these very statements. And then he says, but I say to you, and he's bringing there something new to the table. And so when we, we hear this language, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, we need to ask the question, what's old and what's new? I think that's really important when we're talking about anger and murder or lust and adultery. Hey, can we uh, pause for just a moment? And I just want to direct people to a resource because this may be a new concept in, in people's minds. Hopefully not, but the idea that when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he is actually talking about Old Testament law as opposed to pharisaical misrepresentations and evolutions of what the law was in their mind. Um, so if you'll go to willofthelord.com and you will search in the side search bar Sermon on the Mount and click on those notes there on willofthelord.com, then there is a, a nice presentation establishing that when Jesus says you have heard that it was said, he's, it's actually indeed either quoting directly or um, alluding to the Old Testament's composite teaching on whatever Jesus is referring to, whether it be murder or adultery or, or whatever, throughout Matthew 5. But I wanted to uh, just plug that real quick in case you have never heard of this concept. Uh, there's a little food for you to munch on. Uh, now, cut back scene. Where were we? So, yeah, this concept of what's old and what's new. When he says... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. You can go to the Old Testament, and you can read that very uh, command laid out in the, in the Ten Commandments. That's not anything new. That's what had been taught. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and if you do, you're in danger of the judgment. Then he says, but I say to you, and this is something new, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, we have to ask, what is new about his statement? Uh, was it okay in the Old Testament to be angry with your brother without a cause under the old law? Was, was that something that was allowable, and now Jesus is forbidding that? I don't believe it's ever been acceptable for mankind to be angry with this brother without cause. I think a great illustration of this, even before the old law came into existence, you had Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, where... Cain became angry at his brother Abel because Abel was righteous. He offered the sacrifice that God wanted, and he became angry. And God appeared to Cain and asked him, why is he angry with his brother? Well, we all know how that scene ended. Cain's anger built up, and what's he do? But he ends up murdering his brother. Now, it's important to notice, when he is angry, God rebukes him. But when he murders his brother there's a different consequence that comes into play. God uh, punishes those two things differently. Yet now Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder, and if you do murder, you'll enter into judgment. But now I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Uh, 
I believe what Jesus is pointing out, that is, whereas in the past, anger and murder carried with it two different consequences inflicted by God, now they are going to have the same consequence inflicted by God, and that is eternal punishment. This is brought out later in the New Testament, 1 John 3, verse 15. It's interesting, the wording has changed a little bit, but John said there, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There, the concept of anger becomes hate, and hate leads to murder. They are directly related. Neither sin, whether you're angry or actually commit murder, both of those will land you in the judgment before God. And so now the consequence to the action, to two different actions that have always been wrong, the consequence is the same. Now, we go a little bit further here, and I want to notice in verse 23 of Matthew 5, what he states, he says, So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, here is the process for resolving conflict when we have anger towards our brother. And this is a very different process than how Christians must deal with actual murder. Okay, If you have a person in your congregation who murders their spouse or murders their child or their brother or their neighbor, this is when we, we deal with murder as leaders. Thankfully, I've never had to do that. But if you did, you don't go and have a talk with them one on one and then take a couple witnesses to establish the facts and then the church withdraws from them. No, when a person murders someone, they're turned over to the police and the police hands them over to the judge and into prison. That's not how we deal with anger. 1 Corinthians 6 is teaching that there are spiritual matters that the church has to deal with. When we're talking about civil matters, matters of criminality, we have to turn those over to the civil authorities to be in subjection to the authorities, as Romans 13 teaches. But when we're talking about spiritual matters like anger, the church has to be involved with that. And we have here in Matthew 5, God's requirements of how we deal with anger. And I point out to say this, all that goes to say this, there is a distinction made between how we deal with anger and how we deal with actual murder. Okay? We have to maintain the distinction between anger and murder while also recognizing the relationship that they share. Anger is the seed that will produce roots and a flower that turns into the action of murder. You don't just accidentally murder someone. You murder people because you are first angry. This is what I would call the seed-deed principle. Anger is the seed that grows and blossoms into the deed or the action of murder. They are directly related, yet they must maintain their distinction, and we treat anger differently from murder as church leaders, yet God will punish both in eternal hell fire if they are not repented of. I think that seed-deed concept, the relationship yet distinction, is critically important to understand with anger and murder's relationship as well as the relationship between lust and adultery. So let's look at verse 27 now. 
You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want to notice a couple things in this verse. First of all, it says he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, these last three words are important for a couple reasons. First, we have to recognize, we must recognize that the sin under consideration, like anger, is a sin of the heart. Okay? Number two, in the heart distinguishes between physical adultery and adultery of the heart or in the heart. They are related actions, but they are yet distinct actions. It's like making a distinction between murder and murder in the heart or anger. Lust is to adultery what anger is to murder. You don't commit adultery without first lusting any more than you commit murder without first being angry. Lust is the seed that grows and blossoms into full-fledged adultery. This is the seed deed principle. You actually made me think of a question, um, and this goes back to the Greek word pornia used in Matthew 5 and uh, 27, I think it is, um, adultery of the heart. That's not the same word used in Matthew 19.9 for the grounds for divorce. No, it is not. Um, but regardless, even if it was what you just said about this qualifying statement in the heart, even if it were the same word and it was a broad word that could take on various meanings, that would you're saying this phrase qualifies in this context to distinguish it from the fornication or the the, the pornia. Let's just say yes. it is the pornia that is the grounds for the adultery and or divorce. I'm sorry. In Matthew 19:9, I hope I didn't just confuse everybody. Yes, that's what I'm saying. There's, there is pornia, and then there would be pornia in the heart. And lust is in being distinguished in relation to pornia in the heart, if you will. So people that want to make lust of the heart grounds for divorce, they first all have to deal with this is not the same word used over in Matthew 19.9. Then you have to you know, work out the Greek word study here, and then you have to jump over this hurdle as well. Yes. Keep on going. Okay. So when we read this, this statement, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart, you have to ask the same questions that we did with anger and murder. What What is old and what is new? So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's what you can read in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. I'll just read that. He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Okay, death penalty was involved with adultery just like the death penalty was involved with murder under the Old Testament. Now Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we have to ask, what is Jesus saying that is new? And somebody will say, well, what's new is it's wrong to lust. Well, that's not actually true. It's always been wrong to lust. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the Bible says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That's saying you cannot lust after your neighbor's wife. Another passage would be Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. Lust not after her beauty in thy heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by the means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Solomon's saying, do not look upon a woman to lust after her. That has always been sinful. So this argument that Jesus is now saying it's wrong to lust, that's not true. 
That's not brand new material. That's always been the case. What is the new thing that he's doing? The answer is that he is, a, he is showing that the penalty for lust will be the same as the penalty for adultery. That is, God will punish both in hell fire. Now, we associate oftentimes the concept of adultery within as being within marriage and often claim that an unmarried person cannot commit adultery. And yet here in this passage, Jesus just makes the blanket statement that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, why does the Lord equate lust with adultery if whoever, even single people, are under consideration? I believe the reason for that, or the answer is because, adultery is what brought with it the death penalty under the old law, and the Lord's wanting to make the point, just like he did with anger, that God will punish those who lust in the same manner he will punish adulterers. The point of the passage is that God will punish lust in the same way that God punishes adultery. Just as we discipline members differently than, um, excuse me, just as we discipline murderers differently than we do angry people, so we must discipline and deal with people who lust differently than those who commit adultery. Now notice how Jesus follows up his statement about the relationship between lust and adultery. In verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus introduces two categories of sins that are intimately in related. Sins of the eye and sins of the hand. The eye rep represents what we see and what we think. The hand represents what we touch and the actions that we perform. This is, again, what we call the seed-deed principle. The seed is the, act, the thought, that's the sin of the eye, that when full-grown turns into the deed or the action of either murder or adultery. There is relationship between the seed and the deed, and yet the seed and the deed have to be kept distinct from one another. I think a helpful passage is Matthew 15, verse 19. There the Lord said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Notice, from the heart come sins. It begins with the lust of the eyes, it turns into the lust of the hand, and right there you have murder and adultery paired up together just like we do in Matthew chapter 5. Fornication is a sin of the hand. It requires touch. Lust is a sin of the eye. It's a thought. If people are committing acts of fornication, they must stop those actions, but it can't just stop there. They also have to deal with the sin of lust or the sin of the eye because that's where the seed goes to, heart, to root, if you will, and produces the actions of fornication. Yet, as the church, when Jesus is speaking about the grounds for divorce, he does not go to and talk about the seed. He goes to the actual action of pornia that requires physical touch. Now, 
I want to say a word of warning here. We have to distinguish between the sins of anger and murder as well as the sins of lust and adultery while at the same time condemning all of them and noting their relationship to one another. Let me illustrate this. Maybe this would be helpful. Though we understand that anger leads to murder and that both angry people and murderers will wind up in hell, we can't go around accusing angry people of being actual murderers. Now, I'll just give this illustration. You know, if, if I was at my home congregation, I saw a couple at church and they had a, a, a fight in the parking lot and I saw the husband get angry with his wife and I spoke to them, and then I left, and I went down to another congregation. I'm holding a meeting, and someone comes up to me, and they say, Hey, Nathan, uh, how, how's your work going back home? And I said, Oh, man, it's terrible. We're, we're dealing with a case of murder right now. Uh, this is the third case of murder I've had this week. People would be scratching their head thinking, Where on earth do you live? And if I left it at that, and I didn't explain any further, they would be left with the false impression They would think we have actual physical murderers around and we're having to get the cops and the FBI and everybody involved. Okay, that's not fair. That's not a fair equation to make. If I say we have some angry people and we are dealing with angry people, they can relate to that and they can understand that. We deal with anger differently than we do murder. But we have to teach people that Anger is still a major issue and will land them in hell. God will persecute angry people just like he will murderers on the day of judgment. What happens more often, this happens actually quite often, a man will look at pornography, he'll he'll lust after a woman, and his wife will go around telling people that her husband has cheated on her, that he is an adulterer. And we don't bat an eye at that. Why don't we have a problem when a person calls someone an adulterer and actual physical pornaya has not occurred? There is a relationship, lust leads to pornaya or fornication or adultery, but they are not equated as being the exact same thing. What Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 is that anger will share the end result of murder and lust will share the end result of adultery. Yet they are two distinct items. One is a lust of the eye, the other is a sin of the hand. One leads to the other. They are related, yet they must be kept distinct. This is what is old and new, I believe, being brought out in the Sermon on the Mount here. I think this is really important to distinguish upon when we start talking about the grounds for which God allows a scriptural divorce and remarriage. A couple of things here to follow up with your conversation that I thought of along the way. And um, since we don't have a live audience to ask us questions and answers, (laughs) um, I was thinking how we commonly talk. I I mean, people in general uh, that are Christians. And one of the phrases that we say a lot, and I know I've said it too, is sin is sin. But intuitively, people understand that there is something distinctly different from something like pedophilia and telling a white lie. Yes. There, and this conversation seems to help me rationalize that, there. okay, the distinction that I have intuitively is not made up. It's, it's actually a real distinction. Even though these two people committed sin, and sin is sin, meaning they both will share Gehenna punishment, Gehenna mean hell punishment, 
Um, not getting into a conversation here about degrees of hell, yeah. <laughs> um, whether that's true or not. There are physical consequences that are different for each sin. Yes. We cannot prosecute angry people the way we prosecute actual physical murderers. When you have a murderer, you turn them over to the police. When you have a child pedophile, they go to prison for years and years. So you probably, uh, you may up to this point think, I do not agree with what you've been saying. But if you've ever said sin is sin, and you've ever thought in your mind, like I have, that, okay, but I feel like some sin is worse than others, then Mm -hmm. you agree with what's being said here uh, and what, at least what I believe Nathan has presented as the proper interpretation of Matthew five twenty seven to thirty. Um, so I feel like that's a, a point of common ground here. And then um, the other thing is, you know, we we have talked about the Greek word pornia, and if you've never heard anything about this Greek word, the really an end up discussion of sexual morality and all, we, we may be kind of jumping the gun on you and you may be a little confused. So what I would encourage you to do is to go to five minute And I give a rather detailed explanation of this Greek word in an article is pornography, a scriptural grounds for divorce. Now in that article, um, you know, I go a little bit further than the conversation we have here. And I don't think that at least at this moment in time, that you and I agree on every single point in that article. Um, but one thing we do agree on is people will use the phrase sexual immorality instead of the word fornication. And that's convenient for them because then they can use that catchphrase and fit lust, fit pornography, fit whatever sexual sin, metaphysical or physical, into Matthew 19 and divorce their spouse, yes. quote-unquote scripturally. And you can, the problem is the Bible was not written in English. The word sexual morality was not the word God used. The word pornia was, and then the word I can't think of in Matthew 19.9 that is distinctly different. But uh, it, people who do not have a, even an introductory level of understanding of the original language of the Bible, you don't have to have an advanced language, they commit this fallacy of acting like the English words are the inspired words and misappropriating phrases like sexual morality, which is a very broad word and fornication, a very narrow um, connotated word. So pornia would include any sexual acts in which you have physical intimacy. For instance, homosexuality, that includes physical touch bestiality that includes physical touch pedophilia which includes physical touch it's a broad term that includes a lot of different sexual sins but the point is they include physical touch as the act it's not a mental only thing and that's the distinction i'm trying to make that uh, it is a sin people will go to hell for looking at pornography Pornography will bring all kinds of problems into your marriage and your relationships and the way you think and you view life. And yet it is not physical touch that is a grounds for adultery. But again, as I stated earlier, you don't just one day start committing adultery. It begins with lust in the heart and that lust goes to seed, produces roots and eventually does produce the act of fornication. You can't, you cannot argue that 
pornography has no relationship to adultery. It absolutely does. They are directly related, yet they must be distinguished between. It's not just a matter of stopping having sex with people. It's a matter of stopping the thoughts that lead to that action as well. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. It appears that people were viewing in the old law this concept of the you know, as long as I stop the action, then this is this is okay. And the point is, no, the action and the thought will be equally punished by God. He hates one just as much as the other, though we on a civil level and a church level cannot prosecute the, the two the same. God can and he will. I like your seed deed principle statement, the way you classify that and all. And if you, again, <laughs> if you... Uh, need to relate to this a little bit better and be convinced if you have ever had uh, experience with sexual sin. And I imagine if you're an adult, you probably have, especially if you're, um, especially if you're a male, but female too, you, you probably experienced this. It never ends small. It starts small in seed, but if you keep letting that remain, it will not end small and you will start doing things that you did not imagine yourself doing a year ago if you continue to let this lust abide in your life. And that is a seed growing into the full fruits of eventually committing physical sex with somebody, which you know blows your mind when it happens and you realize what has happened. Um, so yes, if you have experienced life and the lust of the flesh, then you know this to be true. Um, there was something else that you said that wanted to round back on, but... Um, Maybe I'll think of it in a minute. Any any closing thoughts on this subject? I feel like um, did a pretty good job of hitting all the bases. I know, I know there will be questions and still some things left over, but um, any closing thoughts? I would just say this. We talked about the what's new and what's old concept. I think that's really important in the Sermon on the Mount. The article that you reference is very helpful. I think that principle is good to keep in mind as you go throughout the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. As Jesus summed up his parabolic discourse in Matthew chapter 13, he talks about how his scribes will go into their treasure chest and they will bring out things old and things new. I think the reason he's saying his people, that's us, will be doing this is because that's what he was doing in his teaching. He was going back and he was bringing out things old and new, and that's sort of a key that helps unlock the gospel of Matthew as a whole. That's very helpful. And I believe you have, um, I mean, I, I know, I don't believe, I know that you have a series on Matthew. Unlocking Matthew is the name of the series. Uh, it's been several years back. Dad and I got together and he taught through the Sermon on the Mount extensively. I did some more big picture stuff and some thematic uh, theological pieces within Matthew. And it's all posted on my website, christianresearcher.com under, I think it's just called the Matthew Study. Uh, we did video recordings and also posted some some materials along with it that you can download for free. But uh, there's there's a whole lot of different passages throughout Matthew, both big picture and, and individual pericopes, especially throughout the Sermon on the Mount that we deal with. Very good. So go check that out as a parting gift. Um, I will say, let's just end on a positive note. Perhaps perhaps uh, you're listening to this episode. I, I, I imagine that this headline will catch some attentions and people will listen to this because, first of all, sexual sin is very pervasive and goes beyond what many 
might imagine because of it's not always on the surface. Um, if you're somebody that's in sexual sin or you're in the midst of an addiction to pornography or your spouses or whatever, and maybe you're having problems forgiving somebody who has made repentance known and confession and all that, or maybe you're the person that is having difficulty accepting the fact that God could forgive you. Um, I just want to iterate that again, sin is sin and that it all is, is punished by Gehenna hell on judgment day, but also sin is sin. The fact that all of it can be forgiven and there is, and there one day I will talk about the, the uh, blasphemy of the Holy spirit because people misappropriate that verse to, Imagine there is a some kind of sin out there that cannot be forgiven. Um, that's not what Jesus is teaching. All there is not a single sin that by nature cannot be forgiven. Even this, as vile as it can be, and as as much as you may hate yourself at certain points, it can be forgiven. And Apostle Paul is the best proof example that that is true. So, if you're having difficulty with this, uh, reach out. Um, there's many resources for you, and um, just know that you can, you don't have to spend eternity in hell. Well, I appreciate Nathan coming on the podcast. I hope you do too. I hope that you can say that you benefited from this and that you learned something. Uh, Seriously, if you do have any questions about this, this can be depending on where you are at and in your marriage relationship, um, kind of the things that you've been through. It could be something that has really had you thinking. And so if you have any questions, please submit it to myself. If you want to contact Nathan directly, uh, just reach out to the page and I will freely give you his email address um, and you can email him. And then if he wants to give you his phone number, he can do that. Uh, Anyway, so that's that's that. I hope that um, you will feel comfortable to reach out and ask any questions about this. Um, That's all for this episode. So I should be back on schedule and in a couple weeks we'll have another episode here on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. 